Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Asley EcoCast. We're happy to be sharing with you more audio from Asley's Spotlight series, which feature moderated conversations with Asley members who have produced new critical and creative work in the environmental humanities. Episodes follow a theme and highlight publicly engaged scholarship. This special episode is the fourth of the series, Identity and Place, recorded on June 11th, 2021, and features Laura Barbus Roden and Gisela Hefes as co-hosts, and guests Scott Edward Anderson, Victoria Saramago, Charles Maurice Pigot, and Lucien Darjun Meadows. So our very warmest welcome to this Asley Spotlight on new work in the environmental humanities and eco-criticism. I'm Laura Barbus Roden, Professor of Modern Languages at Wofford College, and I'm proud to be with Bethany Wigan, the co-president of Asley. For those of you joining an ASLI event for the first time, thank you and welcome, um, an extra hearty welcome to you. ASLI is a professional organization that seeks to inspire and promote intellectual work in the environmental humanities and arts. And we are so glad for you to join us today and invite you to help sustain and further our work by becoming an ASLI member if you're not one already. Um, it's our pleasure to host this exciting live event, the last um, in our Spotlight series uh, for the first part of 2021. And Bethany and I and members of ASLI's Executive Committee uh, have envisioned and designed this new series to elevate ASLI members' work in creative writing, scholarship, and public engagement. And we're excited to foster connections with new public audiences through these virtual events and just thrilled um, that the previous three have been so um, robust in their discussion and look forward to this one as well. As we get started, I want to extend special thanks to the Penn Program for Environmental Humanities for co-sponsorship of this event and for truly visionary work in public engagement. Special thanks to Angela Ferranda of the PPEH as well as to Amy McIntyre, Asley's terrific managing director. This event would not be possible without the work of the Spotlight Planning Committee and the Selection Committee, and we extend gratitude for their labor, expertise, and time. Our topic today is identity and place, and I want to acknowledge the place from which I join you today, which holds importance for Cherokee and Catawba people, and which has been changed often violently by settler colonialism and enslavement, as well as a coloniality of power that very much operates in the present. And I'd like to acknowledge and honor my own identity as a Cypriot American whose family has been displaced from lands which gave us life for generations. It is good to share this virtual space with you today. By way of logistical information, we'll ask that you remain on mute. We'll have time for questions later and we'll ask that you use the chat or raised hand function on your reactions button to indicate you have a question. Please try to keep your questions concise since we have only brief minutes together. Amy will staff the controls and waiting room. And now it's my great good fortune to introduce our guest monitor, moderator, Gisela Hefes. Gisela is professor of Latin American literature at Rice University, and she also teaches creative writing in Spanish. She is a prolific creative writer, essayist, and scholar. With Jennifer French, she is co-editor of the recent book, The Latin American Ecocultural Reader, and Pushing Past the Human in Latin America's Cinema, the latter with Carolyn Fornoff. She is the founder of the digital repository, Archiving the Future, the Recovery of a, History, a Heritage in the Making, which is an initiative that seeks to gather and record the voices of Spanish-American writers living in the United States. Gisela, I'll let you take it from here. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. I am very happy to be here, and I am extremely honored to welcome these wonderful scholars, writers, and poets. 
uh, I'm going to introduce them uh, uh, in order. Uh, Scott Edward Anderson uh, is the author of Azurian Sweet, Sweet Azuriana of 2020, Following Up, A Memoir of Second Chances of 2019, which re recently received the first literary award of Letras Lavadas in conjunction with Penn Azores, the Nautilus award-winning Dwelling and Eco Poem of 2018, Follow Field Poems of 2013, and Walks in Nature's Empire of 1995. Uh, I'm also delighted to introduce Victoria Saramago, who is an assistant professor of Hispanic and Luso-Brazilian studies at the University of Chicago. She's a member of the executive committee of the Modern Language Association Luso-Brazilian Forum and a member of the Brazilian Studies Association Executive Committee. Her articles have appeared or are forthcoming in novel, a forum on fiction, Luso-Brazilian Review, Ecozona, European Journal of Literature, Culture and Environment, Literatura da América, uh, Portuguese Liter Literary and Cultural Studies, Nuevo Texto Critico, and others. Uh, I'm also very delighted to introduce Charles Bigot, who is an Associate Professor of Liter Lit Literature and Humanities at Universidad de las Américas Puebla in Mexico, Fondum Fellow of Hawks Hall University of Cambridge, and Research Associate of Center of Latin American Studies uh, at the University of Cambridge. His research explores environmental philosophies in Latin American indigenous literature, taking an interdisciplinary and translinguistic perspective in an effort to create a shared framework for the conservation of ecological, cultural, and linguistic diversity. Finally, I'm also very, very delighted to introduce Lucien Darjan Meadows, who is an English, German, and Cherokee writer born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains. He has received fellowships and awards from the Academy, Academy of American Poets, American Alliance of Museums, National Association for Interpretation, and University of Denver, where he's working towards his PhD. Welcome, everybody. And again, I am very delighted to be here. We'll start with Scott. And so I'll turn the mic over to you. Okay, thank you, Amy. And I want to thank uh, Amy and Asley and Gisela and Laura and all the other panelists here today. This is a really uh, an honor to be here. Um, I also want to acknowledge that I'm participating today from Los Angeles, California, on the traditional lands of three Native American Indian tribes that predate establishment of the California missions the Venturino, Gabrielino, and Fredenino. While these tribes are not currently recognized by the U.S. federal government, they are recognized by the state of California and have maintained their tribal sovereignty, protected their cultural resources, and continue to resist assimilation. A brief note about my, my new book, Azorian Sweet, Sweet Azoriana. It's a bilingual book-length poem exploring my ancestral islands in the middle Atlantic, Nine Island Archipelago, uh, that is part of Portugal, and my burgeoning uh, identity relationship with them. Um, while I'm a third-generation Azorian-American, I didn't grow up knowing much about that heritage or my ancestors there. My grandfather's family um, emigrated uh, in 1906 
And uh, really, when they came to America, wanted to assimilate and be American. So it's only been over the past few years, after decades of attempts at research, that I've been able to return to and uh, make deep and lasting connections to uh, this nine-island archipelago, archipelago, which is um, uh, absolutely a remarkable place. Part of what I'm exploring in this work is the complicated relationship between the archipelago's nature and its people, its origins as uninhabited uh, an uninhabited complex of volcanic islands, its endemic or native species, when everything came from somewhere else, the changes brought about by its human population over the past 570 years, and the future and current impacts of climate change on the islands. I'd like to read an excerpt uh, from, from the book. Um, the book is uh, it's a suite, so it is divided into four movements, if you will, and uh, which is further divided into, um, into sections. And I'm going to read um, from the second movement, and um, which, uh, uh, which I thought was relevant uh, to our conversation today. Longitude and isolation. The slow moving seafloor spreading along the mid-Atlantic ridge, which runs from Iceland to Tristan de Cunha, the Açores, where three continental plates come together and drift away, causing constant tectonic disturbance. These volcanic islands share no land with continents or each other. Only the wind and the sea brought life to the islands. Flora and fauna and its people, all immigrants from elsewhere. Only those organisms resilient enough to cross the ocean could call the islands home. Only those resilient enough to survive could take hold, make a life here, prosper. Only the strong survive and thrive. Steep-sided volcanic islands surrounded by sea and very little shelf, causing cold upswelling currents deep from within the ocean floor that meet warm waters from the Gulf Stream making for nutrient-rich seas perfect for feeding sperm whales and other marine life. While far above the surface, the Açores High, a high-pressure system lingering over the islands, meets the same Gulf Stream waters, bestowing upon them their subtropical climate. How long will it last if the stream slows or stalls, as some scientists predict, in this century? And what will it mean for the islands and their people? No one has yet determined the true impact of sea level rise on the islands, although scientists speculate Graciosa will be underwater while Santa Maria keeps rising. But consensus is clear. More future coastal protection measures will be needed, and possibly some re relocation of coastal communities, São Roque, Vila Franca do Campo, and Ribeira Grande among them on São Miguel. Winters and summers will be wetter with increasing ascent of moist air over the island terrain and small increase in temperature in the region. Although the islands are shielded from more drastic temperature increases, such as the ones projected for mainland Portugal. Basically, we're looking at more summer days and more tropical nights. Still, wherever I go on the islands, I open my After Ice app and see what's projected if all the Earth's ice melts. Will this place or that be underwater, even if beyond my life expectancy?
Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. We'll go next to Victoria. And uh, Gisela, I believe, has an introduction as well. Yeah, I already introduced Victoria, but uh, welcome, Victoria. And we're ready to listen to you whenever you're ready. Thank you very much. Yeah, I want to start by thanking you all, especially Amy, Angela, uh, Gisela, and Laura for putting together such a wonderful series. I've been very much enjoying uh, the other episodes and it's an honor to be here. I'm also uh, very happy to be in a panel that has such a fruitful combination of academic and creative pieces. Um, so delighted and delighted to be here with you all today. So thank you very much for attending uh, this event. And today I'm going to talk a bit about the my recent book uh, that came out last November uh, by Northwestern University. Press. Uh, the title is Fictional Environments, Mimesis, Deforestation and Development in Latin America. And uh, well, in a few words, uh, this is a book that um, explores the role of fiction in contributing to environmental imaginaries and establishing environmental policies as well. Uh, so the main questions that guide me throughout the, the chapters are basically what are the how can we understand the role of novels and in this case for most of the times of canonical novels that persist in our imagination right that are keep being read and keep being discussed and keep like a generating filmic adaptations so keep being somehow part of the way through which we imagine some environments um, and how can we understand this role this persisting image uh, environmental imaginary that is brought to us by these novels in relation to the environmental transformations that have been taking place in the in the regions where these novels are set so how can we think about this dynamic relationship between change and permanence what is the role of literary representation on commenting on this change on on the other hand on providing uh non-changeable non images uh, that contrast with those changes Right. So what is the role of fiction and of mimesis, literary representation in establishing, reinforcing and challenging these perceptions of environmental change? And as you will have seen from the title of the book, I focus on Latin American literature, more specifically on Latin American narrative. And historically, I focus on this moment from the 1940s to the 1960s. Uh, the last chapter goes to the 1980s. Uh, so this mid-20th century moment was really a moment of transformations in Latin America, you know, with developmentalist policies across the region, uh, increased deforestation, urbanization, uh, agricultural changes, the mechanization of agriculture. Uh, so it's really a moment in which, um, you know, like uh, most of the ecological mo movements that would uh, like uh, become organized in the late 20th century were not still there, but there was already this very uh, strong sense of change. And this is, this, is, this is roughly the moment on which I focus. And to give you some idea of where, uh, of what my book uh, consists of, the chapters and the authors. So I divided the book in three parts. Each one of them focuses on a, a set of 
issues, attitudes, policies uh, that have been uh, affecting processes of deforestation in Latin America and the imaginative framework attached to them. Uh, in the first part, it uh, talks about conservation, and I'm very interested about the, uh, in the relationship between fiction writing and conservationist policies in the region. So how can novels, for example, inspire the creation of national parks and other uh, conservationist initiatives? And I focus on Alejo Carpentier on the Venezuelan Gran Sabana and João Guimarães Rosa on the Brazilian Sertões, the backlands, um, and also on a range of other journalistic materials, TV shows, and other cultural objects. The second part is, focuses more on developmentalist policies, especially related to urbanization and the mechanization of agriculture. And I focus uh, on Clarice Lispector on the urbanizing suburbs of Brazil and Juan Rulfo on the Mexican countryside. And I try to understand how the, their novels uh, have reflected on and also offered counterpoints to these developmentalist policies in Mexico and in Brazil. Uh, finally, the, my last chapter, uh, it uh, brings uh, like a different take on the, the way in which these authors have been approaching these environments. Uh, and I make um, uh, an argument about how to reconcile this increasing environmental awareness that you see throughout the second half of the 20th century and the 21st century and the reading public's resulting demands uh, with conceptions of literary creation that are not necessarily in line with those demands. So I focus on Mario Vargas Llosa on the Peruvian Amazon and how his works uh, can help us, can create some kind of uh, defense of fiction that does not entail some kind of environmental agenda. Um, attached to it. So, yeah, mostly I wanted to recover uh, these authors and think about them as a corpus, as about the generation dealing with this diverse yet parallel issues and use this, uh, this moment to uh, bring some theoretical considerations about this uh, dynamic relationship between fiction writing and environmental change. So, guess I've spoken for five minutes. I'm going to give the word to the next speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. Um, now we're going to introduce uh, Charles, Charles Bigot. Great. Thank you very much, Gisela. Well, it's fantastic to be here. And I'd like to thank the whole committee for the wonderful organization of the series. So I'm going to be speaking about my uh, recent book published last year with Routledge, writing The Land Writing Humanity, the My Literary Renaissance. And the book discusses the emergence of contemporary bilingual literature in Spanish and the Maya language of the Yucatan Peninsula in Southeast Mexico. It draws on textual analysis of eight representative works, as well as conversations in the Maya language with the authors themselves, to argue that their writing can really change the way we understand literature universally. So instead of being a purely human phenomenon, literature is one of the ways that nature writes itself and constantly evolves. And in order to argue this point, I create a dialogue between indigenous Maya concepts and theories from Western philosophy and science, following a methodology that I define as intercultural eco-criticism. 
And the first philosopher I draw on is Michel Serre and his idea that the universe can be understood as a great story or a grand récit. So human stories emerge from the narrative structure of nature as a whole. And I also draw on Charles Sanders Peirce and his idea that nature has a fundamentally semiotic quality, uh, meaning that it can be understood as a huge network of relationships between signs. So again, human ways of creating meaning emerge from wider patterns of meaning in the natural world. And I link these perspectives with two Maya concepts. The first is Tsikbal, which is a story, but also a conversation. So how stories emerge through dialogue, through the interaction between diverse voices, both human and non-human. And the other concept is which can be translated roughly as writing, but it's also inscription in a much wider sense, like agriculture, the tracks left by animals, but even perhaps the non-physical traces left by previous expressions, such as ideas or understandings. So in this way, the dialogues of Tsikbal create concrete narratives, or Tsib, which in turn form the basis for new conversations. And this is something that occurs not only between humans, but between all elements of nature, as we also see in the combination of Serre and Pierce. So I argue that the Maya literature presents the land itself as a constant interaction between the dialogue of Tsikbal and the inscription of Tsib as a cyclical process that I call bioregional becoming. Now, the bioregion is a concept that Robert Thayer defines as a unique region made up of unique human and non-human elements. This is my paraphrase. And the Yucatan Peninsula, where the texts come from, really fulfills this criterion in its range of unique geology, species, languages, and cultural phenomena. And this is a bioregional becoming because it's not static. It's formed through the constant creation of multiple narratives by multiple human and non-human actors. And within this process, humanity also emerges dialogically through the interaction with the non-human environment. And here I draw on the theory of structural coupling proposed by the Chilean biologists Umberto Maturana and Francisco Varela, according to which the organism transforms its environment while the environment also transforms the organism in turn. And I relate this to the Maya concept of awil, or the double gaze, the complementarity of two parts to make a whole. And literature is really no different in this respect, since it also brings forth a symbolic habitat which can change our understanding of ourselves, a process that I call literary inhabitation. So in summary, the book creates a conceptual map of how literature constantly emerges from the more than human world and how both the human and the non-human are constantly redefined through this process. So in this way, it's not so much humans writing about nature as nature writing humanity. So if we could go on to the second slide, uh, I would like to read out a poem by uh, Felipe Koch Canul, a friend of mine, uh, a renowned Maya author. And this poem really exemplifies the essence of Maya nature writing. It's called Te Mayab, 
in the Mayab, which is the Maya term for the Yucatan Peninsula. Te Mayab, tula kalba al kutai, tula kalba al kutan, chen baale, yanun kan balta al uuya, utia al ka na atak. Hachnibol al titulakale esh. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. And uh, now we're going to move to uh, Lucien. Lucio, Lucien, Dawa Dawa. Hello, my name is Lucien, a scholar of Cherokee and Euro-American descent, coming to you from the ancestral homelands of the Cheyenne, the Ute, and the Arapaho peoples in Northern Colorado. We had snow just last month, but this week we are in the high 80s. So many flowers and trees have bloomed and the cottonwoods are loosing such great tufts of white. I feel like I'm seeing snow again here in June. I'm grateful to Asley for the opportunity to chat about my essay, Circling Elo, a meditation to New England Review for publishing this essay, and to Scott, Victoria, and Charles for this dialogue. Across many Native American epistemologies, where is more important than when? As Cree scholar Winona Wheeler writes, the land has their own set of memories. Fellow Cherokee scholar Rose Gubeli names and describes the Cherokee rhetoric of elology, coming from elo, the Cherokee word for land, religion, law, history, and culture. Gubeli describes elology as a rhetorical form that interweaves language, land, and memory. I describe this as there is no we without a here. There is no when without a where. In circling Elo, I engage critical research, lyric essay, and memory to explore the elegies and ethics of remembrance. I structure this essay largely through a run around the 25-mile circumference of the Horsetooth Reservoir, a 51 billion gallon reservoir that you can see in this photo, just three miles from where I sit now. Constructed in 1949 as part of the Colorado Big Thompson Project, one of the largest projects ever attempted at that point by the US Bureau of Reclamation. It was described in a major 1945 article titled Piercing the Backbone of a Continent. To fill the reservoir, the small town of Stout was flooded, erased. Sometimes when the light and water level are just right, one can see the remains of the native stone one-room schoolhouse. Woven with this narrative about the Horsetooth Reservoir, who is supported by four of Larimer County, Colorado's largest dams, each over 1 million cubic yards, and just for scale, only 12 of our county's 136 dams are over 100 
thousand cubic yards. Our reflections with water and flooding in what is now called West Virginia, where I was raised, where my father, like his father and his father, took their sons for long hikes, asking them, asking me every so often, the flood's coming now, what do you do? Where for years, students of Marsh Fork Elementary School learned immediately below a dam, often cited for neglect of basic safety protocol. For example, being reinforced with rotting wood. That dam held back almost 3 billion gallons of coal waste. And if it failed, the school would have been six feet underwater in three minutes. How do memory, forgetting, and silencing intersect with environmental trauma, reclamation, and survivance? What parallels exist between the erasure and flooding of a small Colorado town and the coal disasters and flooding of Appalachian communities? Between memories, physically erased through partial or hegemonic archives, and those psychologically erased through active forgetting. Shifting between research about the Bureau of Reclamation and environmental legislation and personal and ancestral memories of flood and confinement as a working class Cherokee, I meditate with these questions and their possibilities in this essay, Circling Elo. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucian, um, for that um, beautiful meditation with us. And thank you to all of you um, who've, who've spoken about your work and, and, and read it and shared it with us. Um, I'll open with a first question. We'll follow with a question from Gisela to the whole group. We'll let um, the writers and scholars respond um, in the order that they wish. And, uh, and then we'll ask, as you think with the questions and with what you've just heard, to feel free to um, write in the chat your question uh, or to simply write your question in the chat. And as time allows, and it looks like we will have time um, for one or two questions from the audience to be able to ask our participants today. So I'll just start first with thanks because it was um, truly a pleasure to um, read your text and think with them. Uh, and it's been a delight to hear you speak about them here. Uh, and I'll say that each of you thinks about and with places and identities that change over time and texts that once written make places fixed in some way, uh, even though, Victoria, as you point out, their reception uh, is always ongoing. And I wonder what insights about story and poetry and identity have been emergent for you as scholars and writers, as you think with the complexity of dynamic entanglements. Okay, well, thank you very much, Laura. I think it's a, a really, really interesting question. Um, I would say that the Maya literature that my book engages with, it doesn't so much fixed places in stasis, but it's part of the evolution of the places themselves. It's one element of the semiotic tapestry, if you will. And um, I think one of the things that the book really seeks to explore is how stories about the land aren't purely representative of the land, but they're part and parcel of the land itself. So in many ways, my understanding of stories 
um, has changed as, as a result of the change uh, in the way that I understand the land. And that's something that my engagement with Maya literature, with the Maya authors, uh, ha has really given me. So from, from this perspective, from, from the Maya uh, philosophical perspective, the land isn't just a physical place, but it's a semiotic network. It's a network of relationships, <laughs> uh, a true entanglement of human, non-human, living and non-living non elements. Um, and literature very much forms part of that. If you like, the land itself is constituted by stories and narratives. Um, and of course, these stories feed back into the land of which they're part because they change our understandings, they can reconstitute the places themselves, because if we change our understanding through literature, then of course that has an effect in the way that we interact with the land. And I think also in terms of identity, um, who we are is really rooted in our relationships across the human world, uh, human non-human world, the more than human world. Um, but these relationships are constantly evolving. So we are constantly evolving as well. And that's why um, I very much follow Tim Ingold in preferring becoming over being, since who we are isn't so much what we are at any given moment, but the path that we're on. And that's often only made sense of retrospectively through constructing these narratives about ourselves or about the, the places we inhabit. And I think this comes forth very much in the Maya greeting, the common Maya greeting, how's it going? Which is bish uh, abel, or literally, how is your path? So that would be my, my general response uh, to, to your question, uh, Laura, uh, from the perspective of Maya literature and Maya philosophy. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, when we think about uh, storytelling and identity, of course, we have to think about those who are telling the story, but also about the many modes of reading these stories, right? And this is something that um, I came across many times as I wrote my book, uh, because there are so many layers through which these novels can be understood and read, and they tell different stories depending on how you read them, right? Uh, so, for example, as I said, I'm dealing with um, mostly canonical novels who have been, you know, in the curriculum of schools who have really, like, uh, uh, been very present in collective imaginations. And in the school setting, for example, they're often read within a national framework in mind, you know, like uh, as kind of expressions of some kind of a deep reality of the country, you know. And this is this is uh, the way in which they have often been read in many other uh, contexts. But we must also take into consideration the regional identities that are at stake in these novels, especially when written by authors who were or from these areas or who were, had a very intimate knowledge with these areas and the ways in which you have many more local forms of engaging with these works, you know, like, uh, for example, with Guimarães Rosa, the, the local cultural festivals and traditions related to his work, you know, that uh, tell us a very different story about how this uh, how these novels can become sites for the creation of identities that uh, do not necessarily address uh, this kind of uh, national um, uh, this uh, national framework with which they have been many times read. So uh, 
yeah, I think it remains a challenge a challenge for us, right, to bring together all these levels, the very local, the regional, the national, the transnational, uh, the Latin American thought of as a, as a, as a transnational region, uh, and how they mutually illuminate each other, but also how they can also provide blind sites uh, that kind of obfuscate what other types of readings can show. So I've been trying to deal with this uh, uh, different ways of reading and the many types of uh, for identity formation that we can find uh, depending on the angle through which we approach these works. Thank you, Victoria. And Scott, I see that you've unmuted, so I'll let you take Yeah, that. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this. This is a really fantastic question and um, gave me a lot of, 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 uh, of, of food for thought. Um, I've been thinking about it in, in three contexts um, with relation to the Azores. One is the um, Chronicle of the Settlement of the Islands, which was written 150 years after that settlement um, by a, a Franciscan um, priest, uh, Gaspar Fuccioso. It's a, a work called Saudades de Terra, and, uh, or Saudades of the Land. And um, so because it was written over 150 years after settlement, it's really hard to know whether how much of it is true <laughs> and how much of it is, um, you know, just a, a, a fiction um, or an evocation of, of the early settlers. I mean, there were, there were very few um, uh, people who settled the islands. Um, they were brought mostly from the mainland, uh, from the Alentejo or, or from uh, um, around Viseu in the north. And so they were interior people. Um, not used to um, the ocean or seaside and um, plopped onto the islands in the middle of the Atlantic. And then because there were very few people in um, in Portugal at the time, um, uh, they made a petition to the uh, Flemish uh, people to uh, settle uh, some of the islands as well. So there's a kind of a mix of European cultures that come together on these islands that had no inhabitants before uh, the Portuguese discovered it. So, um, but as a result of this, um, uh, the Azorian, great Azorian scholar and uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, writer himself, Onazuma Ameda, once said to me that the Azorians can never really know their history. We don't really know. Um, and then the second piece I'm thinking about in terms of um, uh, one of the most influential 20th century Azorian poets, Vittorino Nemezio, he, he uh, 500 years after the discovery of the islands in, in, in 1932, came up, coined a, a term called Azorianidade, which is Azorianity, um, which, which he tried to capture the essence of what it meant to be an Azorian. Um, again, an evocation, if you will, of, uh, if you will, of the um, insular nature of its people. Um, he said, the islander is defined by being surrounded by the sea on all sides. Like mermaids, we have a double nature. We are of flesh and stone. Our bones submerge in the sea. And then the third concept I'm thinking about in relation to this question is um, my dear friend and a wonderful writer herself, Esmeralda Cabral, a Canadian Azorian, 
uh, or a Saurian Canadian because she was born in the Azores. Um, she is she's conceived of a concept which she calls intergenerational saudades, which is um, those of us who are removed from the islands uh, for you know either a period of time. In her case, um, leave, being leaving the islands in, uh, at the age of seven, I believe, and um, or in my case, being third generation removed, having great grandparents who. Um, who uh, emigrated, um, but yet have this feeling of connection to the islands. And in my case, when I went there for the first time, I felt like I was coming home, although I'd never been there before. And so, and I'm, I'm thinking about this and Esmeralda's as well, that, that, you know, maybe it's something that's passed on through our DNA, that there's some changes uh, in, in the structure of our DNA or the messaging of our DNA, maybe through RNA uh, that would trigger that sort of connection to a place and hence identity. Thank you, Scott and Lucian. Thank you, Laura, for this question. I'm thinking about what we might call the little words like pronouns and prepositions and how these little words are so essential to generating relationship through writing. Robin Wall Kimmerer's Grammar of Animacy in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, has been my essential companion in this. And I feel that little words like the pronouns, the prepositions can enforce a relationship of domination. Like when we describe a tree, a river, even a bird as it or that, or when we describe our walk on or over a trail. And I'm thinking more about possibilities for dynamic and entangled relationship offered by many indigenous languages. For example, in Cherokee, I've learned six words for the single English word, we, depending on how many folks make up the we, and whether the addressee is included. And so through English, I feel that through these little words, we can foster more relationality. Like I walk with the trail, alongside the trail, to the cottonwood, who is unloosing their tufts in this beautiful early summer afternoon. Thank you. Thank you all very much. And Gisela, I'll let you pose the next question. And again, um, if you have something on your mind or you'd like to raise your hand, feel free to do so. And um, we'll open the question after, after Gisela. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. And thank you everyone for your wonderful uh, responses. And uh, I just had to say that I enjoy very much listening to all a tiny bit uh, on what you have said. Uh, and then I'm going to go to the question. Um, in your presentation, some work, uh, I took my liberty to go into your work as well. Uh, all of you address something that I find very important, which is the transformative relations between words, language, and different environments from different scopes and from different uh, perspectives and disciplines. And uh, Victoria Saramago on one hand proposes that fiction is a site for the production of knowledge, as well as the mimetic relations and negotiations between the fictional and the real environment. Uh, 
Charles Moody Picot, on the other hand, considers how Maya language literature is not separated from the rest of the world. Uh, on the contrary, it emerges from a general dialogical, dialogic potential in nature. Furthermore, he proposes that literature is a biological phenomenon that constitutes both humanity and the human habitat, and is thereby a mode through which the world writes itself. Meanwhile, in Lucian uh, Meadows' piece, language and space are disrupted. We are where we are, you said, and there is no we without a here. The discontinuity between space and language comes about as the latter cannot name what is no longer there. Scott uh, Anderson's poem also translates to a site of memory, although what is missing now is not only the space as we can imagine through the lens of longing, but its absence because it won't be around anymore. In other words, not just as a reminiscence, but also as a physical and material reality. So taking this into account, I wanted to ask all of you to elaborate more on the role of words and with words, I'm also including language, poetry, fiction, and storytelling as an agent that can transform reality and on how this potential shaping of the work can serve to forge new understandings of the relation between words and matter. But by this, I'm also thinking on how we can grasp through words the ongoing climate crisis, but also if literary rhetorical constructions and figures such as metaphors, allegories, and uh, metonymic are helpful at the time of making sense of these changes. I'm not sure who wants to go first. Well, I jumped in first last time, so I'd rather some, give, give somebody else the opportunity. Well, given that you mentioned my work first, I can go first. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that's also a great question and a question that I think that is in the back of our minds in any uh, eco-critical uh, activity, critical gesture, creative writing that we have, right? What are we doing with these words? How can these words uh, bring us something either like a, a some more conceptual framework through which we can make sense of the many uh, challenges we face in the current ecological crisis, for example, or the sense of place, this feeling of somehow being there. As I feel I have read after reading uh, Scott's and Lucian's works, for example, even though I have never been in the place as they describe. Um, so, yeah, I think... Words really help us imagine, and we are talking, and we talk about the ecological crisis when we talk about environments, we talk about uh, like uh, something that is so big, right, that whose scale always challenges us to, to, to make sense of what is it that we are, what, that is in front of us, right? We always have this, uh, like, uh, on the one hand, uh, necessity of kind of creating some sense of what we are seeing and what we are not seeing, especially, and at the same time facing this uh, impossibility of the overwhelming scales with which we deal with, uh, with which we deal. And words in this case can really help us visualize, right? Can help us imagine, can help us um, like uh, tell stories that make. Uh, many of these overwhelming realities and processes more 
understandable to us. And as I discuss in my book, they also may bring us uh, like the, the desire to act to change things. And I discuss some of the of the of the cases in which uh, this uh, relation between reading. Uh, telling stories and acting has has taken place, and there are many others, especially in the past decades. And if we think about all this, uh, like uh, metaphors, allegories, I, I really like, for example, Elizabeth Delaurie's uh, latest book, Allegories of the Anthropocene, in which she shows how the allegorical mode really helps us think locally and, and diversely about this very large phenomenon that many times can be extremely hard to grasp that is the Anthropocene. And so, yeah, I think eco-criticism has a, a wealth of like a brilliant insights onto how to make these connections uh, meaningful and thought-provoking. Thank you, Gisela. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much for your, for your answer. It's wonderful. Not sure who would like to go next. This is a wonderful question. So much to dwell with if I may jump in. My hope would be that a relational way of communicating that honors and makes visible the many, many human and ecological and environmental relationships helps us to see how so many of our separations are constructs, even colonial constructs. My advisor, Joanna Howard, in her recent course on sentient ecologies, shared that one way to fail at surviving our ongoing environmental crisis is to neglect the communal. And that has really stayed with me. I struggle to place my work sometimes in either anthropology or ecology or geography. And I'm drawn to the broad environmental humanities and to hybrid writing that engages critical elements alongside creative elements. This work feels crucial now as ever. And Driftpile Cree Nation scholar Billy Ray Belcourt writes in his recent book, A History of My Brief Body, that even in writing about grief, he says, the creative drive, the artistic impulse, is above all a thunderous yes to life. And I would absolutely agree with that. Thank you, Lucian. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. Um, I, was, I was struck by something Lucian said earlier about the small words. And I think um, that something as enormous as the climate crisis really requires small words. I mean, there, there was lots of studies and research about the impacts on people of, of big numbers, of big, you know, to, to conceive of, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people being impacted by climate change. It's just too much for us to take on, you know. And um, if you think about the, the the very local, very small impacts on your place or your your neighbor's place or you know um, your family or you know friends, it's a lot easier to con to make that connection. Um, I worked for 15 years for the Nature Conservancy, and we struggled quite a bit about climate change. 
Um, I'm very happy to see that they just hired Catherine Hehu to be the uh, director of their climate program, because I think that means that they're finally taking it very seriously. But I think part of it was how, you know, a a, a land action-based conservation organization, um, how can you conceive of the changes and the impact that will happen over time uh, to the places you're protecting? And I think it's, again, in that, in, in words, because nature is a construct; it's a human construct. It doesn't really exist outside of us, outside of our our our, our minds. It's it's it is itself what it is, and but we've named it and we've 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 created this concept. Um, I think we need to figure out a way to do that with climate change as well. And I think one of the things I was struggling with 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 Azorian Suite, which I think you touched on in the question, is that you know this is a place that for me had it was an enigma it it was a um a memory from my dna or it was you know something i uh, intangible out there when i finally got to it and 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 stood in the island it was um you know really a revelation and then immediately because of my background i thought well what's going to happen to this place now that i found it it could be taken away it could disappear you know, be submerged. Some some spots may survive uh, because they're you know the volcanoes were were, were quite ferocious. So they're and 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 fairly young. So there's still you know many high points. But that that was a that was a, something quite daunting to me to 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 look at this at this place and think, oh, it may it may be gone in 20 years. Yeah, that was very striking in the poem. It made me think about how many times we need to project on places and think about whether they're going to be there or not. Uh, so Charles, you, you began and now you're finishing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Isela. Another really, really interesting question. So my book essentially advances an understanding of the world as, as fundamentally semiotic in nature, if you like, fundamentally linguistic in many ways. Uh, following Pierce and also the Maya concept of tzikpal or dialogue. And from the Maya worldview, meaning is constitutive of the universe itself. And I think this is perhaps the root of what's commonly called magic, this intuition that mind does have direct efficacy on matter, because ultimately they're one and the same. Both are constituted by networks of meaning. And obviously magic and science would disagree in terms of precisely how that process operates. But the basic intuition is one that uh, I believe is becoming increasingly accepted in scientific debate today. So this understanding really goes beyond or indeed below the division between the physical and the non-physical or mind and matter, language and reality. Since whether something is physical or not often depends on our level of perception, our kind of perception. And I think that's one of the problems in the current global environmental crisis that often it seems more real for people who experience it directly than for those who don't. But it also means that storytelling, words, literature can be part of the solution since literature can make things immediate to us. And of course, the literary world is no less of a world than the physical world around us. And through this literary inhabitation, through the inhabitation of environmental literature, people's perceptions 
can indeed change and this can transform into actions that seek to preserve what's being lost. Uh, so, for example, in the Maya literature, um, living in a city, one may not be aware of the destruction of the forest to build houses, but when the tearing down of trees is poetically invoked in the literature, it becomes immediate and this can inspire people to take action. So I would say that this absence of any strict division between mind and matter, far from being a recipe for apathy, instead has the potential for, for true change and true environmental restoration. And I think my, my closing point on, on this issue is the fact that uh, the Maya literary renaissance is a bilingual movement, so offers right in both Maya and Spanish, and the versions aren't exact equivalents because the philosophies are different. But this, in my view, forms part of this wider ecological or indeed semiotic tapestry of the land. Thank you, Charles. And I'm going to pass to Laura. Yeah, thank you all. Um, we are right at two o'clock. Um, and there was a question which I'll just highlight um, because I think it points to um, the multilingual engagements that we want to uplift and Asley asking about um, the we's um, and what we's, the word we, what it holds in the different languages um, that are um, known and uh, nourish the work here um, and, and evoke and hold worlds for us. So um, thank you all very much um, for, for being part of the multilingual engagements that Asley would like to uplift um, to, the, to the scholars and writers and thinkers um, that I know are, are very present in this room among our panelists, as well as those in attendance. And um, thank you for the way that you're shaping um, with others um, the spaces around you in ways, ways that hold more, more life and hope. So thank you all um, for joining us today. Uh, this will wrap up our Spotlight series for the first half of this year, and we look forward to many, many more public-facing events uh, in the future of ASLI and to seeing you all in, uh, in many more spaces here and elsewhere. So um, our warmest thanks for your presence and best wishes for, for what's ahead for you. And with that, we'll wrap up. Um, we'll be saving and posting the link to this uh, presentation and uh, the chat will also be saved. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Just gonna follow up on that and I'm gonna say thank you to everyone, uh, to all everyone who presented and the audience and Ashley, of course, for doing this wonderful event or series. So uh, thank you everybody. Thank you.